This is the 18th annual Prehihality program for CSP, which means we've done 17 other ones. If this is your first, um, don't worry. Uh, well, I mean, your education level is a little lower than some of the other people that have gone to all 18, but <laughs> that can be remedied. We record many of our programs, especially our Prehihality program. Last year was, was it David Kosher? Yes. Okay. And we ha we've had great ones over the years. You can go to iTunes, type in OCCSP. That's our podcast, and we ha we'll have all of those up there uh, so you can enjoy it. We have a very uh, special guest I will introducing, I'll be introducing at the end, Dr. Joel Garaboff, who's here. Our topic for today is for whom do we blow the shofar? I would say an evolution of the tradition or explanations that we will um, learn about. Um, I wanted to take a moment to uh, just remember Bobby and Lou Cherry. They hosted uh, almost all of our, certainly all of our first six, seven, eight of our pre-high holiday programs in their backyard. Who was there with me back in the old days? So please uh, bring them both to mind. And um, we want to we want to dedicate this program uh, to them. Uh, this is our 19th year of programs. I want to thank all of you who are supporters of CSP. As you know, most of our money comes from you. We, we are very appreciative of the grants we get each year from Federation and Foundation, but 90% comes from you, so if you haven't donated, uh, the gates are never closed at CSP. <laughs> we will accept your funding, but you know, up there, the balance is up, up and down. A donation to CSP, you're in. I think, at least. Um, and uh, so that's great. But the other thing that we really are doing is continue to build our, is this too loud for people? just for some print. someone I can't say sitting there in a floral uh, print, but the rest of you are fine. I'll try not to yell. Um, we are really trying at this point to continue to build our legacy circle, so I want to thank those of you who are part of CSP Legacy. I want to urge those of you who are not part to join us before Rosh Hashanah and um, help us achieve a challenge grant from the foundation by joining us. One day we may get uh, a benefit from it, but we actually get a benefit right now, which is a, a challenge grant that we can use towards our programs. So see me right after the program if you're not a member of Legacy, and I can tell you how easy it is to become a member. Okay, programs that are coming up. Uh, October 24th, I believe, is a Thursday night, and Yidlife Crisis is coming to Orange County. The foundation is bringing them for the big Legacy program, so it ties into what I just mentioned. If you are a member of the CSP Legacy program or another Legacy program in the community, you'll be invited to uh, enjoy a Yid Live event sponsored by the foundation. And so that's another reason to join us, join our Legacy Circle. The next day, Yid Live Crisis will be staying in Orange County and doing a private lunch event with us. Here's the difference. I wouldn't say they're being censored, on Thursday, but they've been told that they can't use the panoply of their creative abilities that night. So if you've watched Yid Life, you'll know what I mean. Um, but I said, not only are you not banned from doing it at CSP, you will not get paid unless you do all that material. So I suggest you go to both. You can enjoy Yid Live, which is a multimedia, and then a more private event with Yid Life where you can ask them many questions about what they do and why they do it. The other events coming up in October, Rome and the Jewish Imagination with Daniel Stein Koken, October 29th, a two-part mini-series with David Moster, November 20th and 21st. One topic is, was the book of Proverbs written by an Egyptian? Do you know the answer to that question, Ahuva? Apparently it may have been. I don't know, but come and find out. <laughs> and the Etrog, how a Chinese fruit became a Jewish symbol. That is David Moster. 
Then we have um, December, two-part miniseries with Richard Freund. He's an archaeologist. His top, first topic is Rabbinic and New Testament Archaeology, the top 10 discoveries of the 21st century. So again, Ahuva, I hope you will come to that. When? When? <laughs> December 11th. You will, get, you will get invited. And then he'll be doing something uh, the next day entitled Archaeology of the Holocaust. Those of you who came uh, with us in Lithuania know that he is the chief architect of many archaeology programs um, involving Holocaust sites in Lithuania, including the great synagogue that we all saw actually this, in Lithuania in Vilnius. Um, and then our one-month scholar rise, Professor Paul Lips. Um, from uh, Tel Aviv University. We'll be spending a whole month talking about Israel, uh, and uh, it should be quite an interesting month. You'll be getting an email if you're a CSP donor to get invited to, to sign up for classes. There'll be three class series, not four as in the past years, and we'll be limiting size, so sign up as fast as you can if you would like to join any of those classes. And as a benefit to donors, you'll get that opportunity. CSP travel, we go back to Israel, October 18th or 30th, 2020. We have close to 80 people joining us. We have two rooms left if you want to join us. Um, boutique art trip to Israel, October 2021, and Italy, December uh, 12 to 22, uh, 2021, with Mark Michael Epstein. We are continuing to do our CSP hat challenge. I'm glad to see David Levy and uh, Cliff Cornell wearing their CSP hats. So, uh, Professor Garibov, just so you know, I'll get you your hat as well. And you wear the hat at interesting locations. Cliff Ward in like how many countries? How many cities, sorry? Many, 20, I don't know. You wear them in different locations, send me the pictures and you win prizes at the end of the year. We'll announce them when the one month scholar comes in. So you still have a few months to do something interesting. Go to Africa, uh, go to, I don't know. We have, I'm gonna do a map and show you where the hat has shown up in the last three years. I think you'll be impressed. Uh, with that, please take a moment, turn off your phone or put it on vibrate uh, mode as opposed to uh, interrupt mode and um, we are going to get going. Dr. Joel Gariboff, aside from being longtime friends of Esther and Andy Dosick, and teachers of rabbis Linda and Larry Seidman, and Robin Foonberg, and um, by the way, my wife Amy, who can't be here today because she's at home doing homework for Dr. Eric Gariboff's <laughs> class tomorrow. Aside from all that, do not want her to fail. She's on the you know 20 year program, so we just have to get her to the finish line. Aside from being um, connected to all those people I mentioned and maybe some other people in the room that I have not mentioned, he's the Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Arizona State University. He has served as Department Chair and Faculty Head of Religious Studies and was the co-founder of Jewish Studies. I assume that means at the university, not in general history. Okay, at the university. At ASU. He received his PhD from Brown University in History of Judaism in Late Antiquity and his BA from New York University in Philosophy. Dr. Gariboff's scholarship focuses on issues in Jewish ethics, early rabbinic Judaism, and American Judaism. His most recent project deals with the study of, Ju of Judaism and the emotions, with particular attention to anger, shame, and hate. He has served in Arizona on a number of projects related to bioethics, including service on several hospital ethics committees. His teaching has included visit visiting appointments at the University of California, uh, San Diego, California State University, Northridge, Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, Los Angeles, and the Academy for Jewish Religion, California. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Joel Gariboff here to CSP in Orange County. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ari, for a generous introduction and to hear about all the wonderful uh, things that are going on. It's, uh, 
Fortuitous, uh, his wife Amy is in my class now uh, for a second semester at uh, AJR, Academy of Jewish Religion. And uh, the summer, uh, where we discovered that we will be at Camp Ramah together, where I finished my 30th year of service in the summer at Camp Ramah in Ojai. And um, so some of us never have grown up. And uh, love still going to summer camp. Uh, what's so bad? Um, it's really fun to be here to see uh, longtime friends who we haven't seen for a while, the Dossicks and my students uh, and friends, the Seidmans and, and Robin. And uh, hopefully if we had more time and maybe the setting will allow, I'll get to know some of you. Um, we moved to Arizona in 1978 and yes, we, we became Zonies as they're called, and would come over to uh, the West Coast, and uh, whether in Newport or in San Diego. Uh, we lived for 10 years uh, in uh, the valley and the other part of LA, and I actually now live in the Bay, and I'm not a stockholder, but I do support Southwest Airlines. Um, so, um, in any case, as uh, Ari said, who that I got to meet in camp the summer when during staff week, and he told me about the phenomenal program that he's managed to uh, put together here. And I've been involved in Jewish community beyond my university teaching. I've always been involved. Uh, Esther reminded me that I taught her kids in the Jewish day school. I taught in Hebrew high school. I taught adult studies uh, beyond whatever else I've always done in the university as well. So I've always enjoyed this kind of interaction uh, with people. And um, so that's where kind of all these interesting interconnections. As Ari mentioned, um, I, I do teach rabbinics. Uh, I teach Talmud at HUC now for 21 years. That's my actual area of training, though I teach at AJR more in Tanakh and Bible. And I write also on American Judaism as well. And uh, I got interested in this field of religion and the emotions, which is a fascinating area. Um, the study of emotions in the last 20 years has become a burgeoning uh, interdisciplinary era of inquiry, which, has moved, which includes people who work in the sciences, neuroscience, psychology, but also my angle, though I've read some of that material and have a little bit of understanding of it, I'm not a, a neurologist, so I don't quite understand how the brain works. Um, but my area has been interested in what's called the cultural construction of emotions. This is basically means, and I will illustrate it with your help in a minute, um, that although there may be certain natural emotional responses to certain kind of triggers, um, so we all, many of us know what's called flight fright, or flight fright, uh, when you hear some startling sound, you become fearful and you react and there are biophysiological responses in terms of what happens and you start getting cortisol and all kinds of stuff happens physiologically. And there may be certain other kinds of reactions that trigger, let's say, weeping under certain occasions. Exactly which kind of experiences will result in which kind of emotional responses is actually culturally specific to some ways. That's not universally the case that the same event will, will occasion the same response. Well, while perhaps destruction of something we value, uh, if it's done unjustly, may cause us to be angry at somebody, what we value is not the same among people. So to use a simple illustration, if, um, 
if I dr dropped, uh, uh, as I was shopping in a store and picked up a knick-knack and dropped a, a vase or something and broke, I might be a little bit angry that it's going to cost me money to replace it. I may just blow it off and say, okay, so I was careless. But if it was my bubby's or great-grandmother's uh, heirloom, I'd probably react quite differently to the same experience of what just happened, a $2 vase broke. That means, now, religions as part of cultures, as an example of culture, equally invest certain experiences occasioned within people, certain kinds of responses that other people might not have. So let me illustrate this by what we're going to talk about today. Uh, and I know there are problems here with the mic, so if I ask you to, if you respond, I'll try to repeat it, because I think that will help in terms of the uh, sound rather than running around with the mic. But I, I love to teach, not standing up, but I like interaction, so I look forward uh, to your responses. I, I assume everybody here has heard of shofar sound. Yes. All right? Okay. So tell me, but if you're sitting, particularly if you're sitting in synagogue, Shoal Temple on the high holidays, and it comes to the chauffeur service, and you hear the chauffeur sound for the first time during the year, what do you think and feel? What kind of response do you have? Thank you. Tingling, emotionally exhilarating. Okay, others. Transported back to their mystery. Transported back to history of a long time ago. Long time ago. Do others of you have any other historical connections? Two. The shofar connects me to other people laterally, experience the same thing. Okay. But also going back to history, really harkens back to a pre-prayer experience, something that we Okay. Know. So there's long historical connections to it. Anybody, um, so, uh, uh, yes. Oh, sorry, sorry, that was in hand. Um, so my first paid job as a Jewish worker in the Jewish community was being the chauffeur blower in my show growing up. So I grew up in this small little Orthodox synagogue in, in Providence, in Rhode Island, uh, which then moved to a bigger synagogue uh, when my Zeta was the Muhammad, actually. And um, I had the job of blowing chauffeur in services, a big show with a, you know, with a balcony for the women and a big chandelier. And um, and I actually remember the rabbi who actually ended up living in L.A., uh, whose granddaughter, great-granddaughter came to Camp Ramah. Uh, these world, but that's the point. That, that when I hear the shofar at times, it triggers certain memories that, in this case, very personal ones. Anybody have something like that they think of? Right. My daughter. So, <laughs> he said, my daughter, who's 10 years old, would blow the shofar at 10 years old. So when I hear of it, I think of the time when she first started to blow the shofar. Right? Now, yes? Uh, my memory is uh, the first shofar that I bought 
Ah, right? Family. He he said that his um, grandson, or son or grandson, son. He brought a Yemenite shofar for him, and then he went back and bought another shofar. Right, and so there's all kinds of personal family memories. Another memory I have: we lived uh, one year. We lived in Yerushalayim. Uh, my wife, I, and my three kids in the in Haratzofim in the uh, or in Givat Ram uh, Givat Safratit, the French Hill, and so we're on the backside of the Temple Mount. Uh, but every Shabbat, every Friday night, right before lighting of candles, the shofar is sounded, as it had been done for centuries. And it's kind of an interesting memory. I have this memory of standing on the roof of my building, where one way I could look out at the city of Jerusalem, and the other side I could look out at the Dead Sea and the, the, the stark hills of the Judean hills. I was hanging my laundry on the roof, uh, we didn't have a dryer, and, and uh, the shofar blew, and that's like a trigger memory for me. So it's interesting the kinds of memories. Now to illustrate my point, if you had a non-Jewish friends heard this weird instrument, do you think they'd have these kinds of emotional reactions? So all this is a way to illustrate, right, that, that the way in which we experience a particular action is, um, brings to with it, we bring to it uh, all kinds of memories. Some of those are personal. Some of those are communicated to us through text stories we hear, which become our stories, which in turn shape how we experience the event. Now, I, uh, we will look a little bit now, in a minute, looking at a range of texts that look at what the shofar is about, and particularly, why do we blow it, and for whom do we blow it, as this practice developed over the course of centuries from biblical times, until I will take us through some early Middle Ages, uh, though I'm happy to talk about also how contemporary Jewish uh, responses and ways of constructing the shofar uh, has taken place. Um, and we could look at, I've looked at how the different machsarim, uh, sidurim, prayer books for the high holidays construct, uh, produced in America from the middle of the 1800s till today, framed the shofar service. And if you were to take and look at the different machsarim, if you look at uh, um, the reform machser, uh, Kon Shema, uh, that's a reconstructionist machser, uh, the, now the contemporary version of the conservative machser, the orthodox machser, they actually understand the shofar and they want the, or, the participants, the congregation, to actually, there may be some overlapping elements, but they actually understand what's going on in the shofar being sounded very differently from each other. And I hope to be able to show that uh, to you uh, uh, now. Now the reason, just one last comment uh, by way of introduction, is um, I got interested in the study of religion and emotions partly because, as I've said, the study of emotions has not been a very prominent topic. 
If you were to open, I, I tried this out one time, typical introduction to Judaism books. And there, I don't have to tell you the names, but there are all kinds of books like this. What do they generally talk about? What are the chapters about? Holidays and holidays observances. They give you a sense of the calendar. They will talk about life cycle events. They will sometimes talk about ideas and beliefs like the idea of monotheism, one God, or the Jews have a notion of God gave a revelation in the Torah, and some will talk about the rabbis understand, and some will mention the rabbis understood this idea of rabbinic oral Torah, et cetera, et cetera. So they talk about practices and beliefs. What they tend not to ever talk about is how do Jews experience life through these behavioral practices. They tend to not give you any sense of the emotional resonance of what it is to be a Jew. I mean, so to, to, to simple example, you know, uh, cultures will see crying as appropriate or unappropriate. The same, under the same circumstances. Keep a stiff upper lip. Don't try, don't yell, don't scream. Screaming at God, what kind of crazy thing is that? Well, Jews have done that. Right? I mean, so I don't want to belabor this point, but I was talking more about emotions in Judaism, but I wanted you to think a little bit about beyond, um, beyond uh, what is done. I think when we look now at why it's done, and for whom it's done, you'll begin to see some variations. And while some of you spoke of the personal memories, and I love your comment about the exhilaration, I think we'll see some other kinds of responses that the shofar was meant to engender in people as well. So Ari's going to um, take a moment and pass around the uh, a handout I've produced of any number of uh, texts any questions or comments before I proceed? You forgot one issue about the shofar, which is the cringe-worthiness of having, don't, not knowing whether the shofar blower will actually be able to blow the shofar. Ah. I was, I was trying, he, he said the cringe experience. I, I suppressed the other part of my uh, first job. So I stood, stood there and garnish came out. And I sort of got saved by the rabbi who decided to, uh, he was very patient till I managed to get out of <laughs> So, yeah. Um, I, and I, I suspect also, by the way, just to have you reflect on this, when I was growing up, there was one chauffeur blower who blew the shofar in the synagogue. And most people, by the way, then also had a typical small shofar horn, right? Now, as you mentioned, Yemenite, all kinds of long shofrot with very different tones are used. And in many synagogues, at least that I've been to, um, you'll have multiple shofar. First of all, different people blow the shofar at different times. And then often for the tekiah gadola, they'll have everybody blow the shofar. Or at the end of Yom Kippur, every, and you have this sound coming from all over the congregation which creates a very different experience from 
what I suspect, at least if my case was typical of many of you, you grew up with one chauffeur blower, and while that was powerful, it's not the same experience in terms of seeing often kids of seven and eight years old to the oldest members of the congregation getting up and blowing the shofar. So with that introduction, I want to look very quickly with you at a series of texts. And particularly, we'll get to some texts that associate the shofar with Rosh Hashanah. And we'll see what Rosh Hashanah, actually what it starts as. So I'm just going to look very quickly in here. So the, from the book of Amos, Amos, when a shofar is sounded, yitaka, you, many of you know that word tikiah, we'll come back to one of the shofar notes. When a shofar is sounded, shall not the people tremble. Now nobody's mentioned that. But one of the primary associations of the shofar biblically and throughout Jewish history was to instill fear. Now, I'm not advocating here for what it ought to be for you. That's for you to take away from this and to reflect on what I say. But I think we can easily understand, first of all, the sound can be shrill. And if you're not expecting it, it can be startling. And we'll begin to understand what are some of the cultural uh, memories that particularly associate the shofar with a sense of fear. I think you can already imagine that if you just think of the liturgy for the high holidays, at least the traditional liturgy, where the, one of the central elements is the, the Unatana Tokef prayer, where, where it's imagery of we're being judged whether we shall live or shall we shall die. Our lives are at the moment uh, hanging on a thread. And in part, this association of the shofar to occasion some kind of fear and trepidation within that understanding of what the day is about. That's one understanding of Yom Hadin, the day of judgment, though it's not the only meaning of what Rosh Hashanah is, which I think you already know, and we'll see this in a minute, kind of has the extremes. Great joy, celebration, creation of the world, and then we get this element of fear and trembling and standing before God, and of course, uh, in traditional liturgy, equally as well, if you know the Hinnani prayer, where the chazan comes now often staged, walking from the back of the congregation to the front, and speaks of, here I am standing before you, biyira uvefachad, in fear and trembling. Now, whether we think fear and trembling is an appropriate set of emotions ever, if that's how we understand a God, if we think there's a God, Right? These are interesting questions, and if you were to look at, again, which I don't have time here, the various machsarim, you will find some accentuating that element, and some very much minimizing that the holiday and the hearing the shofar should be a moment of somehow occasioning fear, getting us to think about the precariousness of our lives, Right, in one moment we could be here, Ketzelo there, we can be like a shadow that quickly passes. Right, and uh, these are interesting themes. So the first text I chose is from Amos, which speaks that. The second text is one deals with the scene of Mount Sinai. There too, right, as the text says, the shofar is blowing, they're great blasts, and the people can see 
can hear, the, can see the sound of the lightning, which is kind of an interesting image itself, right, where certain things are being sort of not operating in the normal way. Uh, Sinai is a moment, theoretically, of both great celebration, entering into a covenant with God, but being in God's presence is sort of like, I always think of those scenes as the Wizard of Oz. Right? And the, where the wizards, you know, making all this tumult and the people are cowering in uh, fear in front of the de in front of the wizard. Until the little dog comes along, but we'll leave him alone. Uh, Joshua, I won't read this text. This is also an interesting text. This is the text of the, the circling of the city of Jericho, which culminates right on the final day of the circling. They blow the shofar, and as you all know, as the song says... And the walls that came tumbling down, right? And, and so clearly, what is this thing? Does that imply that some people thought of it having some kind of, to use a word, I think we may associate with some kind of a magical power? Now, I suppose the rationalist would say, it hit the right pitch, such that all of a sudden the mortar in between the bricks cracked like the old Memorex text, uh, tape commercial, right? Where you sound the sound and it can crack the glass. But I think they, whatever it is, it has a certain power. Uh, now whether it's the tech, whether it's God behind it or not, I leave to you to um, understand. Uh, many of the Psalms sung on Friday evening, a Kabbalah Shabbat, Psalm 98 of them, a great a joyous occasion. So Psalm 98, raise a, raise a shout to the Lord. All the earth break into joyous songs and praise. Praise the Lord with lyre and with, uh, with lyre, with the lyre and melodious song, with trumpets and the blasts of the shofar. Raise a shout before the Lord King. What's it sound? So this is a big celebration. Or what's it sound like the shofar is being used as here? Praising God. So you've all seen the pictures when the king would show up. What would happen? The trumpeters would come out with those big long horns, with the, uh, with the insignias on them, right, and the banners on them, and they'd blow the horn, and to acknowledge that here comes the king, which, of course, is what we understand in Rosh Hashanah. The central image of God is Melech, and God is king, other imagery is there too, but that's a prominent image within the high holiday service. But this is celebratory. Though, does everybody really want to go before the king? Here you go. Or if I got to get some business done, do I want to go see the governor? Now I'll deal with the little guy down here in the DMV who I know is cousin, and I'll say your cousin Vinny, you know him, and I can get everything done fine, and I don't have to deal with all this fear and trepidation of having to appear and say the right magic words in front of this big shot. I'd rather deal, right? So I mean, there's these, I think what I'm trying to ca capture is there's a kind of emotional uh, multivocality, a, a multiple set of emotions, but often quite, um, Oppositional emotions can be experienced through the same moment of a king coming, can be celebration, but there's often an element of fear that's tied in it. Um, Psalm 150, as you know, is the great musical 
uh, psalm which talks about the, that many of us know now from Leonard Cohen, uh, right? But singing, I mean, that's, well, sorry, he, but he didn't sing it to these words. So in my synagogue, we sing this hallelujah to Leonard Cohen's tune. And it talks about all the different instruments, right? The, 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 the orchestra of nature symbolized as different instruments. That's Psalm 150. Isaiah 27. Now, um, he says, And on that day a great shofar will be sounded, Yitaka, and the strayed who are in the land of Assyria shall come and worship the Lord at the holy mountain in Jerusalem. So Isaiah lives uh, at a time period where the Jews are, in, are under threat. The northern kingdom of Israel had been destroyed. The southern kingdom is hanging on by a thread. And Isaiah has this great vision of everybody eventually returning to Jerusalem. This text in time is understood to be referring to what event? The days of the Messiah. I, it's not the original meaning, but in time, this idea that at the messianic era, when the Messiah comes with all his troops and, and forces that will deliver us from evil and suffering, right, there will be, there's a lot of militaristic imagery here, right, the shofar will be sounded to announce the coming of uh, the Lord and the restoration of the Lord's kingdom. Um, I'll skip text 25 now. This has to do with they sound the shofar also at the Jubilee once every 50 years when everybody gets to go back to their old family plot. Again, a great celebration day. Um, numbers 10, which is top of the next page, text number 8. This has to do with a, is another set of instruments that the biblical texts talk about, something called a wind instrument called chatzot which are usually translated as trumpets. And there's certain biblical texts, particularly this passage in Numbers, speaks of sounding these trumpets at certain occasions where the shofar is, is spoken of much more commonly. We'll see those, and in time, the rabbis have to figure out how these two instruments get used and how they fit together. Now we come to the texts that deal with what we think of as Rosh Hashanah. Leviticus 23, text 9. Speak to the Israelite people thus. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe complete rest, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. Zichron Teruah. So teruah is the other shofar note we know, right? One verb and note is tekiah, litkoa. Another note is truah, lahariah, right, in Hebrew. Those are, now, interestingly, this is a day of zichron truah. So a lot of you know the word zecher or, or zachor. Do you remember what it means? Pun intended, sorry. Okay, see, good, that worked. Zecher Zicharon is meant to remember. What the heck is this day about? On the first day of the seventh month, you shall have a day of complete rest, typical Jewish holidays, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. 
The only other text that actually speaks of the seventh day of the first month is in Numbers, in the seventh month and the first day of the month. You shall observe a sacred occasion. You shall not work at your occupations. You shall observe it at a day when the horn or the shofar is sounded, Yom Teruah. It doesn't say shofar, it says Yom Teruah. So actually notice both texts, neither of those texts mention a shofar, and neither of the texts designate the first day of the seventh month as Rosh Hashanah. It's not here. There's only actually one biblical text that speaks of the, uses the phrase Rosh Hashanah, and it puts on the 10th day of Tishrei. It's in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah. So that, that's a whole interesting topic of where to decide. The long and short of that is, is that biblically, it's not clear there's something called Rosh Hashanah. Uh, we read a few weeks ago, oh, we, sorry, um, uh, no, not a few weeks ago. Sorry, in my class we read yeah, last week. That's I'm confused. We read the text in Exodus, which says, "On the first day of the first month, there shall be in the beginning of the months for you." So the first day of Nisan is also called the beginning of the months. Of course, we Jews we like at least two half for Rosh Hashanahs, and the Mishnah in time, the rabbinic text will say, "Nah, two's not enough. We'll have four. Right? But all my point here is, and this is another topic for a longer day, is, is there is no Rosh Hashanah as we know it in the biblical text. It's just another day. And exactly what's supposed to happen, some kind of making sounds of horns, maybe a shofar, that's what we started with. Maybe we should go back there. No. Uh, what would rabbis talk about on Rosh Hashanah? Uh, anyways, um, so then we have other texts very quickly. Bold the shofar on the new moon, on the, on the moon, uh, on the covering of the moon on the festival day. This is actually Tiku Bachoda Shofar Yom Chagenu, which is actually the verse that we insert in, the, insert in the liturgy in the evening prayer right before the Amidah. And this becomes associated with Rosh Hashanah because it says, it says on the new moon. Of course, it could be any new moon. Another text that becomes associated with Rosh Hashanah, happy are the people who know the sound of the shofar, Yodei Truah. Uh, again, it knows the sound of the Truah is really the correct translation. O Lord, they walk in the light of your presence. That verse is used in the shofar service to introduce it. And um, uh, another verse from Psalms, which I'll explain in a minute what it means and how it rabbis understand it. God ascends Allah Elohim b'truah God ascends in the sound of the shofar Adonai b'kol shofar and the rabbis will play with why does one part of the verse use the word Elohim for God and one uses the name Adonai and they'll parse it and you'll see in a minute how they're going to make sense out of that um, and um, the last verse is an interesting verse from Isaiah where Isaiah the prophet says, cry with a full throat with restraint, raise your voice like the shofar. Declare to my people the transgressions of the house of Jacob, uh, their sin. Uh, this text will become very important in the medieval period. Well, guess how? Because preachers saw themselves as prophets and the preacher 
would see their sounding of their voice, they're saying their words as if they were sounding the shofar. And in time, what was not always a practice in Judaism, having preachers running around and preach out before the holidays, somehow becomes analogized and subsumed under all the imagery of the shofar. And that's a whole interesting topic itself, how preachers sort of came to understand themselves. So these are the biblical texts, yes. Absolutely. And the shofar goes off, and shofar goes off, and suddenly you are roused from your complacency, and you ah. are reminded that whoa, I, my life—it's not just every day today. Something is special. Well, it could. Be, it's interesting. You, t she said that hearing the shofar sort of has a practical impact that you hear it, and it's to rouse you for complacency. I would have taken initially, thought you were going to go and say, hearing the shofar sounds, it's like the bell at the end of a period in school. <laughs> and it, now, depending on how much you like school, that could be, oh God, I gotta go to another period. Or yay, school's almost over for the day, right? So I think it could vary, but it could be also, depending on its frequency and the occasion, and wait a second, it's Friday afternoon, and if I'm Shomer Shabbat, that means something very different than if I'm hearing it at 12 o'clock on Tuesday in the, to hear it's time to go for lunch break, which is, right, some, I don't know if any of you grew up, where you would still hear the, I mean, we used to hear the fire department sound the siren at 12 o'clock, and some towns they used to blow a whistle in the factories, right, and that would signal a certain thing would happen, and how you'd react may be dependent upon how much you enjoy being where you are at the moment and what you're gonna to have to do next. Oh God, I have to go home and cook dinner now. I better just stay here. Okay, so um, now we have cell phones that do all those things. And yes, there's an app for a cell phone shofar. So if you wanna, you can know it's also a cell phone grogger. So anyways. Okay, now we're gonna to get to rabbinic texts very quickly. And here we're gonna see Rosh Hashanah begin to develop. I said this before, uh, three, there are four new years on the first of Nisan, the first of Tishrei, for the reckoning of the years and for the Jubilee year. And four times during the world, I've skipped part of the text and sort of give you the key parts. And four times during the year, now we get to what's gonna be what you know about Rosh Hashanah. At four times during the year, the world is judged. So this image of God being a dayan, of God being a, making judgment. On Passover, God passes judgment for grain, alatfuah. On Rosh Hashanah, and now notice the word Rosh Hashanah by the rabbinic period. So the biblical texts are from 1000 to 500 BCE. This rabbinic text is from 200 of the common era. Clearly, by rabbinic times, the notion of Rosh Hashanah has entered the vocabulary of Jews, where it wasn't biblically there at all. On Rosh Hashanah, even though there are four Rosh Hashanahs, but on Rosh Hashanah of Tishrei, all who have come into the world pass before him like a military troop. Right? So this image of we're passing before God on Rosh Hashanah to be judged. Ah, right, it's militaristic imagery. We're being, ah, and we'll see what that sounds like. It's a re, but it's like a review. But other imagery uses sheep. Ah, we'll get, right? 
So the liturgy of, uh, well, but what's the, what's the same about both of those? What's, what's the purpose of passing before? Judgment. Right, so, right? so the shepherd, well, the shep a shepherd can just be gathering his sheep. But the imagery used in the Tanatokef is like a shepherd who enumerates his sheep. And this sounds like a review of the troops. Are they all passing muster? Are some of them out of line? Are some of them going to get KP because they're not behaving correctly? Or perhaps worse, depending on how, uh, the, the, how authoritative and what power the, the judge has, or the, the military reviewer has. I, I was not in the military. Some of you are in the military? Anybody here in the army? Or No? Yeah. What was it like to line up for inspection like that? Yeah, so, right? Okay, another Mishnah text. Now we're getting to actually Mishnah text on the shofar. It will bring me to what I really want to talk about. The shofar blown in the temple on Rosh Hashanah was blown with the wild goat with its mouthpiece overlaid with gold. We don't do that anymore. And two trumpets were on the side. This is how the Mishnah imagines the Rosh Hashanah service being staged in the temple. Two trumpets, shofar in the middle. Shofar in the middle gets the longer notes because it's the primary instrument. It integrated the two instruments I mentioned in the uh, uh, biblical text. Biblical text doesn't know of these two being used together. But your lips were not supposed to touch that gold. Right, so something happened here and the rabbis will come to understand that temple practice can differ. He, he mentioned there's a restriction about using gold, there's all kinds of issues Is that inter interpose between the mouth and the shofar. And what becomes, there's a distinction drawn often in rabbinic thinking between practices associated with the temple and practices that are performed outside of the temple, particularly after the temple's destruction. So there's something unique about the way it was done in the temple. And now we're going to see more of this in text number three. Um, well, the one who leads the prayer service on Rosh Hashanah, the second prayer leader, the one who reads the Musaf, the additional prayer, causes the shofar to be blown, which is, some of you know, if you grew up in a more traditional practice, they would both, they both there's two shofar services. There's what's called the sitting shofar service, even though we stand for it, which is done after the Haftarah is recited. And then there's a shofar service done in the Musaf repetition. The reform liturgy has dealt with this in various ways, and in the current reform liturgy, the three parts of the shofar service that eventually developed from Musaf, Machiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot, are interdispersed across the day, not at one time. The reform movement does not do Musaf, so it had to find another place to put it. And there are differences if you study reform Machsorim from the middle of the 1800s to now, there have been various ways it's been enacted. And traditionally, it's done twice. And here it said the primary service is actually the Musaf service, not the one most of us think of, which is the one after the Haftarah, which is kind of interesting. 4-9, uh, the order of blowing the shofar service is three sets of three blasts. Some of you know this. Tekiah, Trua, Tekiah. 
The length of the tekiah is three truot. The, the length of the truah is like three, now this becomes interesting, yivavot. Though we, the interpretation of that is not clear, we'll see in a minute, the Talmud will understand the yivava as a whimper. And the big problem you'll see in a minute is they don't know what the teruah is. And so some of you know we now have a teruah and a shvarim. And the way the shofar gets blown is to cover our bases. Since we don't know what the teruah is, we do one set of tekiah, teruah, shvarim, tekiah. Then we do tekiah, shvarim, which are three short blasts, tekiah. And then tekiah, teruah, tekiah. We'll see the Talmud text that actually says, we have no idea what a teruah is, so just to be sure we got it right, we'll do it all. Which is how Jew, uh, there was a teacher of blessed memory, Jacob Padakowski, who taught at Hebrew Union College for many years. And he wrote a great article called Some Laws of Jewish Liturgical Development, How Jews Develop Liturgy. One of his laws is, whenever there's more than one version of the same prayer, what do we do? We say both. Right? So, right. He also has a very profound issue, which, which I'd love to explore. In all matters of liturgy, the ultimate decider is the printer. <laughs> it's called money makes the world go round, and printers weren't going to print books that nobody would use. So actually what happened is people would sometimes print books that had different traditions in them to make sure the people who live in this town will still use it and the people who live in this town will use it. Except over time, guess what happens? Both towns assimilate each other's tradition, and now we have a whole new tradition which nobody ever did. Uh, I mean, that's fascinating history itself. Okay, so I'm going to um, skip the next text and go to where it says Talmudic sources. A bunch of Babylonian Talmud sources from the sixth century uh, CE. This is the ultimate klutz kasha. Everybody know what's a klutz kasha? A klutz kasha is a fool's question. As my Zayda would say, what is this for a frog? What kind of question is that to ask? I mean, they didn't respond, hmm, could you help me understand why you asked it that way? It was kind of like, you idiot, why would you ask such a stupid question? So Rabbi Abahu says, why do we blow the shofar with the horn of a ram? Actually, it's not such a stupid question, you'll see in a minute. But they say, well, the Holy One, blessed be he, blow before me a shofar of the ram so I can remember in your behalf the binding of Isaac, the son of Abraham, and I will consider it as if you bound yourselves before me. So for whom are we sounding the shofar? God? Because? What's supposed well, we to happen? Want him to remember. <laughs> Who's supposed to remember? God. Maybe God has a little amnesia. He's been around a long time, suffering a little bit of dementia. Um, and, and God has, I mean, it's a fascinating idea. You have to trigger God to remember things. So what's the shofar supposed to remind God? Right? Uh, which is the Torah reading on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, the binding of Isaac, a very problematic text. 
right, which I assume many of us have problems with, like what kind of God would ask Abraham, who's waited all these years for a kid to sacrifice his, his kid, and I'm sure we've all heard sermons to make sense out of it. The rabbis see this as a meritorious action. Now, who is the more meritorious, Abraham or Isaac? The rabbis themselves debate, and it could be both. And there are all kinds of traditions of how Isaac acted upon the altar and he willingly was, right? But you have in this um, uh, um, uh, text an idea that some of you may well know. It's in the opening paragraph of the Amidav, the Shemona Esrei. It's the notion of what's called Zechut Avot, the merits of the ancestors. Somehow we can latch on to the brownie points of our ancestors' behavior. So for the rabbis, one of the reasons we bother shofar is to remind God of what our ancestors, of our ancestors' devotion to God, and we will gain the merit. Now, does it assume, therefore, we also are thinking about that at the time? What do you think? If, I, if the shofar is being blown and God's supposed to remember the merit of Abraham and I'm thinking about what some of us grew up with, are the Yankees or the Red Sox winning the World Series? Is the rabbi going to announce the score? <laughs> do, you think you get, do you think the rabbis there imagine you're going to get the benefit? Right? So there may be a level of our participation that's presumed and are reflecting on it, but primarily the audience of sounding the shofar is God. Yes? Would that also be in his remembering that we get the mercy? Ah, well, yes, right. So, so it's it not explicit in this text, but we'll see other texts in a minute. We're going to highlight God's mercifulness now, whether God was, whether you understand, in this case, was God being merciful by calling off the sacrifice, or is God being, well, I'll leave it to you to how to characterize the deed who would ask for this kind of sacrifice, right? Uh, thanks for being so merciful as after you were nearly going to kill me. Thanks so much for sparing, but people do that, for sparing my life. And other people say, I don't, that wasn't, whatever happened, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be uh, thankful for this person deciding not to kill me after they've threatened me and emotionally drove me up a wall, you know. Anyways, okay, so that's number, that's the first text. Rabbi Isaac said, ah, this is the real clutch, Kasha. Why do we blow the shofar in Rosh Hashanah? And they respond, why do we blow the shofar, the tekiah? God said, blow the tekiah. Rather, this is what he was asking. This is what the Talmud always does. They can't imagine somebody asking a stupid question. So he said, no, 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 you misunderstood what he was asking. What he really was asking is, why do we sound the truah? Not the tekiah. But they answered, by the way, why do we sound the truah? God said it's a commemorated with truah. So obviously he can't be asking, why do we both the tekiah and truah? Because we know the answer to that. God told you to do it. Aha, here's the real question. Rather, he was asking, why do we blow the tekiah and the truah while they were sitting and blow the tekiah and the truah while they were standing. 
Now that's actually an interesting question. Why do we have to have two services? I mean, the reform movement said, we don't need two Amidas. This is kind of silly. Why do we have to have two staging of the shofars? And does it actually, you could ask, does it diminish the experience if you hear it more than, you know, does it become overkill? Well, so that's the humanistic, that's the humanistic answer for the people who say Shul starts a Kiddush. Uh, well, in Yosh Hashanah there's no Kiddush, so you may come a little earlier, right? Uh, at least I'll be there for that one. Or more realistically, it was for the, and I don't mean sound sexist, for the women who had to run home and prepare lunch, they'll be there for the first chauffeur service, run out for Musaf and make sure when everybody comes home for Shul, the meal will be ready, right? But listen to the answer they have here. In order to confound, to confuse Satan. Now, I'll, I'll hold that thought. Some, now who's the primary audience of hearing the shofar, at least one of, of the double sounding? Satan. I'll explain in a few minutes who Satan is, but he's not a good dude. He's not on our side. I mean, the quick answer is Satan's understood to be the prosecuting attorney in the divine court. And he's going to bring our case before God. And better he doesn't do so. That's basically the meaning here. But what is this about here? Right? And, and, um, and there, are, there are verses that are found in the Bible, particularly in the book of Zechariah, Vitigabra, Basatan, Levalde, Astineni. And, and may you sort of diminish Satan's power to be satanic against me, to prosecute against me. The same verses used um, in uh, the traditional shofar service before they sound the shofar in the middle. There are a series of seven lines that are used. One of them speaks about Satan. And I'll say very quickly, in contemporary Orthodox um, prayer books, even in, especially Art Scroll, but also in Koran, this idea is still prominent. It's omitted from the liberal Maksarim. But the idea that somehow the sounding of the shofar has impact on heavenly beings is very, emerges in the Middle Ages, it's already here and it becomes further developed, especially in medieval Jewish mysticism in Kabbalah. It's still retained in art scroll. It's eliminated in all the other prayer books, although there were certain echoes of it still in like the 1948 Silverman Machzor. If you grew up in a conservative synagogue, he still has a little bit of that in there. The reformed prayer books got rid of this pretty early, right? And Koran, which is Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, has a little bit of it, right? So, I mean, if you sit in synagogue, whatever where you are, take a look at what it says in that small print about what's supposed to be happening here or the reflections on the side in, let's say, the new conservative reform, Machzorim. And you'll see some interesting things here. Rosh Hashanah 26b, text 3, uh, said Rabbi Levi, the commandment of Rosh Hashanah in the Jubilee year is fulfilled with curved horns and for all the rest of the years with straight horns. So the Gemara, the Talmud asks, but we have learned in the Mishnah, the Sofar, the Rosh Hashanah, should be we done with a wild goat, and that's straight. Typical Talmudic problem, conflicting sources. 
So Levy stated his position in the, according to the view of the Tana, who's named a certain teacher, Rabbi Judah. On which issues do the Rabbi Judah and the anonymous opinion disagree? One master, Rabbi Judah thinks that the more a person on Rosh Hashanah bends over or bends his mind, da'ato is used in the Hebrew there, the better it is. That is, the physical nature of the instrument is now being interpreted to have symbolic meaning. So according to his view, a curved or bent shofar is appropriate because it should parallel the experience we have. We should feel ourselves as sort of bent over before God, as God's going to judge us, and, and sort of in that fear and trepidation. Uh, the better it is. And the conclusion of the Day of Judgment, a Day of Atonement in the Jubilee year, the more a person straights out, the better. It's great celebration. And of course, the other master thinks that in Rosh Hashanah, the more a person is straight, the better. And on fast days, the person should bend over. So there's a practice in Judaism, if rain doesn't come, you declare a public fast, and they would go out into the Talmud describes this, you'd go out into the town square, you'd bring out Torah scrolls, you'd bring out the ark, and you'd sound the shofar. So he says, basically, Rosh Hashanah, we should feel straight. We should, we should be posturing, it's a day of celebration. It's a day of the world's creator. Fast day, we worry. Are we doing the right thing or not? We approach God more humbly, with humility. But the, the investing of symbolic meaning within the physical nature of the instrument sort of becomes not just the sound, but the very appearance should parallel how we experience what's being done there. And uh, some of you spoke about, it's interesting, you think about the different shofrot, if you grow up with a small one and the long ones, and, and, and the, that's another whole dimension of Judaism that is not, that is only, I would say, in the last century been appreciated and, and talked about the aesthetic experiences of being Jewish and, and how the aesthetics and the emotions are captured through certain ritual objects. So that's text number three here. Uh, and text number four. Uh, the length of a yivava, uh, the length of a trua is three yivavot. We saw that before, yivavot. But it was taught the length of the trua is three broken notes, shivarim, setabaye. In this, about the meaning of the following biblical text, that there are, the two of them disagree. For it is written, you shall observe it when the, when the horn is sounded, yom trua, and the Aramaic what's called the Targum, renders that verse a day of yivavot. So the Hebrew word turag got translated as yivavot. You'll see in a minute what that means. And it is written regarding the mother of Sisra. So Sisra is in the story of, Bar of, De of, of Deborah, and she's the mother of, of the, uh, the non-Israelite general. And, it, and she's depicted standing, as it were, on the widow's peak of her house, looking out for her son, who's been delayed in returning. And it says there in the book of Judges, through the window she looked and she cried. 
Yitiadev, Yivava, same Hebrew Shorosh. One master thinks that the Truah is like the trembling. Genuche Ganach, that's Aramaic. Hence speaks of broken notes. And the other master thinks the anonymous sound of the Mishnah, it should be like sobbing, like whimpers. And the Talmud would ask why that sequence? It's Shvarim Chura. And it says, first people may go, ay, 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 and then they lose control and they start, you know, ay, 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 ay. Now, the, so the sounding of the horn is now understood to be as if it's crying and wailing sounds. Now, who's to experience it that way, you think? Who's the audience now? We are, perhaps. This is signaling us, and if we have this emotional response, right, then God may so react as well. Um, I'll skip text number five. That's the end of certain number of uh, Talmudic texts. But I wanted to look quickly with you at the text number one under Midrashic texts. Midrashim are biblical commentaries, right? Uh, whereas the Talmud is written around the Mishnah. The Mishnah doesn't cite the Bible, but it talks about, as you saw, what should you be doing on Rosh Hashanah, and it doesn't cite verses. Midrash starts with verses from the Bible and makes comments. So there's a particular Midrash called Psikta de Rav Kahana uh, from about the fifth century of CE. And according to this, Rabbi Judah ben Nachman in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish commenced by citing the following verse. God ascends in the midst of the sounding of the shofar, the Lord to the blast of the shofar. Allah Elohim b'truah Adonai b'kol shofar. So what's going on here is that biblical poetry is built around what's called parallelism. A verse will have two parts, and the two parts will say the same thought or similar thought in slightly different ways. I went out to the car, to the machine, I did go. Now the truth is they don't perfectly reiterate each other. That's a whole complicated issue of how parallelism works. But the rabbis always ask, so why the use of different names of God? Why Adonai and Elohim? And here's their answer. When the Holy One, blessed be he, ascends to take his seat on the throne of justice, on Rosh Hashanah, he goes up with the intention of judging with strict justice. But when Israel takes up the shofarot and blow them, the Holy One, blessed be he, arises from the throne of justice and sits on the throne of mercy. Now, how do we know that? Because it says, for the Lord, Adonai, uh, to the blast of the shofar. Now, what's going on here? The rabbis generally interpret the word Elohim as a name of God to be the God of justice. Adonai is the God of mercy. That's not used, that's used across rabbinic texts. 
So it says, Allah Elohim betruah. God first ascends to the seat of judgment with the truah. But Adonai becomes Shofar. This is a very powerful idea that for centuries Jews thought in terms of. The object of hearing, the, the audience intended to hear the Shofar is God. And the proper sounding of the Shofar will somehow perhaps exhibit to God what we're thinking, maybe more magically like the story of Jericho, and God will be transformed from strictly administering justice to being merciful through the sounding of the shofar. Um, I know we're sort of towards the end of our time here, so I, I think this, this quick run-through of a range of biblical medieval uh, texts, I, I don't have time. Um, I just want to look, if you skip up one last text, the medieval rabbinic text. Uh, I guess uh, that's on page seven. Maimonides is the great rationalist of Jewish thought. And these ideas that we do mitzvot to directly impact God, let alone Satan, is highly problematic to Maimonides. So Maimonides says the following, text one, this is also printed in many machsorim to introduce the, the, the service. Even though the blowing of the Rosh Hashanah is, even the blowing of the Shofar and Rosh Hashanah is a divine decree, and that is no rationale is provided, this is a classic rabbinic challenge. It's known as ta'amea mitzvot. Biblically, why do you do things? God said so. But over the ages, the Jews have said, what, is God just arbitrary? Did he just pick him for no good reason? You should eat this, not eat that. So the rabbis continually look for ta'ameha mitzvot, reasons for doing mitzvot. So Maimonides kind of equivocates here. And even though there's no reason provided, it contains an allusion to a rationale. As it says, awaken those who sleep from your slumber and arise those who slumber and inspect your deeds and return in repentance and recall your creator. Those who forget the truth amidst the vanities of time and waste their entire year in vanity and emptiness, which do not benefit nor save, look into yourselves and improve your ways and deeds, and let every one of you abandon his evil way and thoughts that are not good. The primary reason for blowing the shofar, according to Rambam, is to occasion to, to shuva. Forget all the angels and forget about affecting God and all that stuff. It's for us. And I would end by asking you to reflect on, and I think if I've been at all successful, depending on what you bring and the memories you bring and the texts and ideas you have, hearing that sound will be enriched and deepened and, and tweaked in particular ways. I thank you for your attention. I'm happy to entertain a few questions, if there are any. And uh, please feel free to take the text home as well. Are there any questions? 
comments or observations or? Okay. Good. Thank you all. Thank you all. Shana Tova Mituka to everybody. <laughs>